teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody, again. It's one announcement really this week. This is Christmas concert week. What you just heard is going to be there and several other great songs. So again, I encourage you to come to that. We're going to have it Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. Um, it's going to be an opportunity to hear praises to the Lord, to hear His Word. And I would just ask that you would um, make sure to be a part of that, um, not just in participating and coming, uh, but also too in praying Commit each day, would you, this week to pray for that? We're, we're doing this concert not as a, so that we could have some form of entertainment during Christmas, not as some way to try to get more people in here to fill up our coffers. We want to do this because we want to take opportunity to give God worship. We want to take opportunity to proclaim the fact that we have a king, that he's coming back again. And he's going to come and judge his enemies and save his friends. And we want to make sure that everyone has heard the message so that they would not be an enemy, but rather a friend of Christ when he returns. And so please, I would just ask that you would pray each week, pray specifically for people that you'd like to invite, and then take that bold step of inviting them. We definitely uh, focus this opportunity that we have this weekend to exalt Christ and also to make him known. And with that, there's a few other things, a few other ways that you could serve, not only in prayer for that time this weekend, but also we're going to, I guess there's a need for, uh, we'd like to do a cookies and a little dessert thing afterwards. This is an opportunity for fellowship and for uh, people to get to know one another. So we need, I understand, some desserts, some cookies in particular. So uh, please do that. If you don't know how to make cookies, you know, just go buy one of them things in the store, the Pillsbury things, and cut them up and you'll be fine. But just be great to, to have some more desserts. Also, too, uh, Jeff Learned told me every night they're going to have, um, during the concert, there'll be folks praying. If you would like to participate in that um, here in the prayer room, that'll be during the time of the concert. I don't remember the concert times, but I know they're on the poster out there. So, um, again, this weekend, Christmas concert is coming up. With that, let's pray for the concert and also pray for those in our body and pray for our time in the Word together. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity this weekend to bring before you our songs of praise. Lord, I pray for those participating in the concert, the ones singing, the orchestra, the ones doing sound and lighting, and just all the various ministries involved in that, that you would preserve their health this week, that you would encourage and strengthen them, Lord, and use them to uh, Lord, proclaim your goodness. And I pray, Lord, that... Uh, there would be many who would come, many who don't know you, that they would, uh, Lord, hear the message through song and through, uh, Lord, the spoken word of, of your good news, that you've sent your Son to save a world that's dying in sin. And Lord, I pray that you would use us, Lord, this week to do that and be involved in that. I pray, too, Lord, for the many in our body going through various things. There are many, Lord, looking for work, uh, job to support their families. And I pray, Lord, that you would... Strengthen them, give them faith, trust in you, and that you would provide. Pray, Lord, too, for our marriages within this church. God, that you would be at work in them. Lord, that you would use them to honor your name, that you would use your word now as we look at what you have to say about marriage. That, Lord, it would strengthen, encourage, challenge us, Lord, to have marriages that honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is on the topic of marriage. I thought that uh, it would be fun to introduce it through uh, hearing how some children have responded to various questions about dating and marriage. Some of these I have Jane to blame for, for them. But um, So there were just some questions, you know, that you'd ask uh, some kids, see what they say. One of the questions was this, what do people do on a date? Ten-year-old um, Martin replied this, on the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go on a second date. Guess he's got it wired. What do you do on a first date when it's going bad? One nine-year-old boy said this, I'd run home and play dead. <laughs> and then, smart kid, he follows it up with, the next day I would call all the newspapers and make sure they wrote about me in all the dead columns. 
When is it okay to kiss someone? Seven-year-old Pam said when they're rich. <clears throat> Kurt, who's also seven, said the law says you have to be 18, so I wouldn't want to mess with that. Howard, who is eight, had this to say. The rule goes like this. If you kiss someone, then you should marry them and have kids with them. It's the right thing to do. Amen, Howard. <laughs> or the question was asked, is it better to be single or married? Nine-year-old Anita gave this advice. It's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. <laughs> boys need somebody to clean up after them. What has she seen in her home, I wonder? <clears throat> Will, aged seven, responded to this question by this. It just gives me a headache to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. <laughs> or the question was asked, how do you decide who to marry? Alan, who was 10, said, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. Again, what was he seeing in his home? <clears throat> Kirsten said to the question, how do you decide to marry? She's also 10. She said, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before. It's good theology. And then she adds, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. <laughs> this was my favorite one. <clears throat> Ricky answered this question, how would you make a marriage work? And he gave this advice. Tell your wife that she looks pretty, even if she looks like a dump truck. <laughs> Some wisdom there. <clears throat> Out of the mouths of babes. But as people get older, they tend to get more cynical about marriage, don't they? In fact, one man said, all, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad one, you'll become a philosopher. So says Socrates, one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived. I wonder if his wife actually heard what he said about that. Or there's the person who said sarcastically, the shortest sentence in the English language is I am, the longest is I do. Ouch. Pretty pessimistic. But you know, it does reflect how many people feel at times about marriage, even those who are believers. But I love the African proverb, which said, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. African proverb says, a man without a wife is like a vase without flowers. I think that's a good picture. That's really how marriage should be pictured. And the Bible has much to say about it. The Bible has many passages that encourage and call us to, uh, to enjoy marriage. Proverbs 5.18 says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be always exhilarated with her love. Ecclesiastes 9.9 tells us, enjoy life with the woman whom you love, for this is your reward in life. Peter so eloquently put it in 1 Peter 3 that marriage is the grace of life. But there can be periods of time, even long ones, where marriage doesn't feel like the grace of life, but rather the grind of life, where there is not sweetness, but bitterness. Feelings of my husband gives me no attention and treats me like a nanny or a maid or a mistress. My wife shows me no respect. She won't let me lead feels more like we're roommates and not lovers. We have more bad days than good. You've been there? Maybe you're there now. How could something, you know, thinking about this, how could something that God made to be so wonderful, something that He tells us to rejoice and to be exhilarated by, to enjoy, how could something like that become such a struggle? Paul wasn't oblivious to this reality. He, he realizes and realize the challenges that marriages are that we face in a fallen world. And, and so he devotes the most attention that he gives to any subject in the practical section of his letter to the Ephesians. He devotes it to marriage. In fact, the 12 verses that he gives here are the longest section of any in the New Testament on marriage. And so I would ask you to please stand and let us see again what Paul has to say in Ephesians 5 about the gift of marriage. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 22, Holy Spirit says through the Apostle Paul, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. 
But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself. And let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Amen. You may be seated. You know, this passage here is compelling in in so many ways. Not only by the things that, that Paul says, that Paul puts here, but by the things that he leaves out. I mean, you would think that he would use this opportunity, like so many marriage books do today, to address specific issues, common struggles in marriage, like communication, intimacy, finances, in-laws, parenting differences, right? These are the things that pop up on all the the top ten lists of things that uh, cause divorce or things that cause struggle in marriage. So why didn't Paul not say one word about any of these things specifically? Is it that uh, the fact that, well, he was single at the time and therefore he he doesn't know anything practically that he could help with in these areas? Is that why Paul didn't mention any of that? I think Paul realizes that the these issues are not the problem. They're only the symptom. Right. Marriages don't fail. Marriages don't struggle because of bad communication. The ultimate reason for conflict is not because of meddling in laws or money or socks left on the floor. That doesn't mean that those issues aren't important. That doesn't mean that uh, socks on the floor are not irritating. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't deal with communications problems. But the issue is how do we go about doing that? And those things can only be remedied as we understand and apply certain more fundamental truths about marriage. So this morning we're going to look at six pillars Six fundamental truths of a God-honoring marriage. And through the diligent pursuit of these six pillars, God will use that to yield a marriage that will indeed feel like the grace of life. And keep in mind, too many of these pillars, they apply to any relationship, not just between man and wife, but especially between man and wife. And last week, we looked at the first pillar. We saw that in this passage in Ephesians 5. The first pillar is the remember the reason. Remember the purpose of marriage. We talked about two purposes last week, two reasons. The first purpose we saw was that marriage is for, as remember, Christ. Amen. Christ. Marriage is for Christ. Paul referred here more often to Christ and his church than to husbands and wives. Christ is clearly the focus here. He described the, the mystery in verse 32, the mystery of Christ and his bride and the fact that Christ and the church are not an illustration of marriage, but are actually the blueprint for it. When God brought Adam and Eve together to be one flesh, in that day he had the eternal bond between Christ and his people, Christ and the church in view. So the more you experience marriage as God intended, the more you will understand your union to to Christ. And in the end, the quality of your marriage is really going to be determined by the quality of your relationship with Christ. As you sacrifice for your spouse, you better know and appreciate Christ's sacrifice for you. As you are humble towards your spouse, you better understand Christ's humility towards you. As you work at showing mercy and forgiveness towards your spouse, you more highly value and appreciate and are grateful for the mercy and forgiveness Christ has shown you. Right? If Ephesians 5 says anything about marriage, it says that the most important person in your marriage is not you, it's not your spouse, it's not even you together as one. The most important person in your marriage is whom? It's Christ. He's the most important one. We must recognize that we exist for His glory, amen? You exist for the honor and the exaltation of Christ. And we saw last week that marriage was not primarily made for you, but for Him. 
God designed it, and He intends to use it for His purposes. Yes, in that design, we are allowed to participate in the grace of life, and we can be greatly blessed by it. But in the end, God wants to use marriage to advance His gospel. He wants to use marriage to exalt His Son. He wants to use marriage to bring glory to Christ. Again, we saw last week that it is made primarily for Him and not us. And that is a foundational truth that we need to grasp, that, that you need to comprehend, that, that you need to really pursue and understand and meditate on if you're to have a marriage that God has called you to. I want to ask you this. After last week, did you think about your marriage in those ways? Did you think about any time during the week how Christ might be honored in your home and how you treat your spouse? Did you consider or remind yourself that your marriage is an act of worship towards your Savior? Any time during the week, did you call those things to mind? If not, I'd ask you why not. Because again, that's where it all begins, to the glory of Christ. Because I lead, I submit, I love, I serve, I endure, I am patient, I forgive, I show mercy, I admonish, I am kind, I am compassionate, only because of Jesus in honor of Him. That's the primary reason to be married. It's an opportunity to lift up the name of Christ. There's a second purpose we looked at too last week. A second reason for marriage. Also started with the letter C. What was that? Marriage is for Christ and marriage is for companionship. That's right, companionship. I mean, it's so kind and gracious of God. He designed marriage not only for His glory, but also for our good. He wants it to be something that we're blessed by that we appreciate and enjoy he's made it as as the to be the the closest most fulfilling human relationship that you could ever experience right adam we talked about came into the world by himself god made him first and he was alone and then god brought him eve and he just about blew a head gasket when he saw her he now had somebody to live life with He had another person to show his affection towards. He had another human being that would show love towards him. He had somebody who would care for him. And and Moses says it is for companionship. That was the reason that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two become one flesh. In today's vernacular, your spouse is your BFF, your best friend forever. Is that true in your marriage? You know, I challenged you last week. Think of one thing that that is getting in the way or hindering your friendship or or causing it not to be where it could be. I asked you to consider or even talk to your spouse something that you could do practically together to cultivate your companionship. Did you do that? Did you give it some thought? Did you talk to your spouse about it? If not, why not? Don't treat your marriage as a, a business arrangement. Remember, the reason for marriage... It's for companionship and it's for Christ. You know, and all that sounds great. You know, if we were to look at that, it seems, well, what a wonderful plan, God. You really set this up amazing. You designed a husband this way, a wife this way, brought them together, and you have this wonderful plan to be glorified through marriage and, and to, for it to be this great companionship. And it looks great on paper, God, but that's not what I see. That's not what I see in the marriages around me. I mean, what, what happened between that, that beautiful sixth day when Adam and Eve were created and brought together and now? What happened? We traded God for a piece of fruit. Humanity went from the, the heights of communion with God, the, the bliss of marriage, to the depths of disunity, separation from God, one another, conflict. The utopia of Genesis 2 became the nightmare of Genesis 3. All because Adam and Eve chose to trust God's enemy and themselves over God Himself. And as a result, they rebelled and brought sin into the world. And if there's one defining characteristic of sin, is that it brings war. Sin brings conflict. Galatians 5.17 says, The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Right? Our sin puts us at odds with our Creator. And our sin puts us at odds with one another, especially those in our home. Sin is what keeps us from glorifying Christ. Our sin is what keeps us from cultivating that companionship with our spouse. 
And we need to see it for what it is. It is the great enemy. Thomas Watson said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And I would add to that, neither will marriage be sweet. Till sin be bitter. And to really fix what is going on in our marriages, not only do we need to remember the reason that it's for Christ and His glory and for companionship, we also need this second pillar, which is to see your sin. And to understand this, I want you to turn to another great text on marriage. Actually, it's one that Steve brought up at the beginning of his testimony, 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15. As you look at this passage, you may not see the word marriage in there, but it is definitely critical that you understand the example and principle Paul was giving here if you would see God work in your marriage. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost or chief of all. Paul gives here what he calls a trustworthy statement. That is a, a faithful word, something you can bank on. And he says this, it is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not the good people, not the ones who say, well, I know I'm bad, but I've done enough good. Not the people who don't feel that they need a Savior, not the righteous. He didn't come for those. He came for sinners. Any sinners in here today? Yeah, we got a few. Well, Paul put his hand up too. And he did it through a a pretty astonishing way with this remark that he gives. He says, among whom I am foremost. And emphasize the point, he adds, deserves full acceptance. What he's saying is Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And without any doubt, without any question, I am the biggest one I know. If you want to see in your change in marriage, if you want to see a change in your marriage, you have to land at the same place Paul did in that verse. The statement is profound because, you know, Paul was a pretty good guy. If you think about it, he's an apostle, actually a preeminent one. He's mentioned a lot in the New Testament. Paul was a super missionary. He did some amazing things for Christ. He spread the gospel all over the Gentile world within the Roman Empire. Paul suffered more for Christ than just about anybody else. Paul wrote a good portion of the New Testament. He performed many miracles, even raising a dead guy. And yet this same guy says, I am am the chief of sinners not i was not i used to be i am present tense and for emphasis he adds the pronoun i in the greek i myself me i am the biggest sinner i know and paul isn't presenting here a feigned humility he's he's not trying to sound spiritual paul looked at his past and he looked at his present he looked at his own heart and he said i i'm the biggest wretch i know After reading a newspaper article entitled, What's Wrong with the World? G.K. Chesterton wrote back this simple reply, I am. That profound insight is exactly the same one we need to take in our marriages. You know, my wife isn't the problem. My husband is not the problem. My children, my circumstances, these are not the problem. What is the biggest problem in your marriage? What is the biggest problem in my marriage? I am. I am. You aren't having problems with your spouse. You're really having problems with God. Yes, your spouse may have sinned against you. In fact, they probably did. Or they may have hurt you. But your sinful response, your discontent, your anxiety, or even the things that you did that tempted your spouse to do what he or she did to you, those are on you. And those are what demand your attention. In fact, oftentimes that, that's what takes place is the focus is on what happened in the moment of the conflict. But we often, often don't think about what was it that I did way before that, perhaps years before that, or habits or other things that I've done that have moved my spouse and provoked them to such a point as to their response toward me. And then I just focus on their response rather than on myself. And you and I, we need to embrace these facts about us. These need to be uh, our focus, that I am the biggest sinner I know, that I am the one who struggles submitting to God, that I am not the spouse that God called me to be. I am the one who needs to change. I am the one that I first need to be suspicious of. Isn't that what Jesus was trying to get at in Matthew 7? In fact, turn there with me, Matthew 7. 
It's a familiar passage, but it's again another great marriage text that doesn't have the word marriage in it. And as you're turning there, I'm reminded of the story of a couple. Uh, they were on a road trip together. And at one point, they stopped for a bite to eat, had some lunch together. Uh, may have been even at Denny's. And they were having, they're having a great, great meal together with one another. And after they finished the meal, they, they went back on the road and were driving for a while. And all of a sudden, the wife realized, oh, no, I left my purse at the restaurant. And to make matters worse, you know, not only had they been on the road for over an hour, they were driving on a mountain pass. And so they couldn't find a spot for quite a while to turn around. So like any great husband, her husband was incensed. And he complained and he was bitter and he scolded his wife the entire trip back to the restaurant. He didn't let up on her the entire time. He was so agitated. To her relief, they finally got back to the restaurant. And as she was quickly rushing out of the car to go in and and get her purse, her husband rolls down the window and he yells out to her, Hey, while you're in there, you might as well get my coat and wallet. It's about right, isn't it? Well, Matthew 7, Jesus also uses a humorous illustration to communicate a similar point. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Jesus says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. From the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log, the plank that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold, the log is in your own eye. What's Jesus exposing here? What's he? He's like he's turning on a spotlight. And as he is veering it toward you here, Our tendency is to do this, right? No, I'm not the problem. Put the spotlight over here on her, on him. That's the problem. She's got the issues. Look at his sin. Look at her sin. Look at how she's treating me. Look at how bad and evil he is. Don't shine the spotlight on me, Jesus. I'm not really the biggest problem here. They are. Jesus says, no. You know, we we readily condemn the sins we see in our spouse and that usually the same ones that we fail to see in ourselves. We are so quick to attack or blame the faults of our wife or our husband or that other person in our relationship with them. We easily identify his blemish or her speck or that minor dust particle in their eye. You know, we, we've got the, the eyesight of an eagle when it comes to our spouse's sin, but we're as blind as a bat when it comes to our own. That's why Jesus confronts us here. That's why he gives us this pretty absurd and and silly picture. Because it's just, it's silly to focus on somebody else's sin instead of our own. Again, Christ isn't saying the other person hasn't sinned, right? He does acknowledge there is a speck, there is a problem. And he's not really talking about who is the greater responsibility for the conflict or the issue or the sin involved in your relationship. What he's really concerned about most here is your focus. He wants you to look at the situation firstly and primarily as it pertains to you. Oh, how we fight this, don't we? We fight that. It's ingrained in us. I'm not the problem. Okay, okay, I, I know I sin. I know I'm not perfect. And then we say, but... Right. Or even when we do acknowledge, OK, I know I, I've, I've sinned a little bit against him or her. But a lot of times we even land responsibility for that at their feet as well. If he or she hadn't. Right. We say things like he makes me so angry. Or if if she hadn't interrupted me while I was on an important call, I wouldn't have responded to her that way. Or if, if he would just compliment me on on how much work I put into making that meal, I, I, I wouldn't have snapped at him. Or if if he would only show me more attention, then I wouldn't be bitter. Or if she would just stop nagging me, I I would do what she wants. I'd quit looking at other women if she would just satisfy my needs. I would respect him if he would just lead. I would lead if she would just respect me. It's like, you know, I think the first words that we speak aren't mama or dada. They're really, it's not my fault. You know, if we could string them together at that age, that would be the first thing out of our mouths. I didn't do it. And King Saul, he was a master at this. You you remember his story, right? In 1 Samuel 15, God told him to wipe out all the Amalekites. They've been sinning and rebellion against me for over 400 years, and I'm done. 
They're going to receive my judgment through you, Saul, and through your army. I want you to wipe them out completely. Don't take any spoil, nothing. So what does Saul do? He spares their king, and they take some of the best sheep and oxen and livestock for themselves, right? So Samuel shows up. You know that famous line, you know, Saul says, I obeyed the Lord. And Samuel, what, what do I hear? I hear some sheep. Sounds like a cow that time. What are they doing here? Saul says, well, well, we, the, the people, the people spared some of the best of the flock. They did it. Samuel gives him another chance. Saul, Saul, come on. Why did you not obey what God clearly told you to do? And again, Saul goes, I, I did. It's the people. They did it. Two separate times. He points the other direction. I obeyed. They've got the problem. They pressured me. They were the ones that made me do it. It's not my fault. Contrast that with David. He was confronted over his great sin of adultery and murder. And we look at his response in 2 Samuel 12 and Psalm 51. You know what? Not one time did he blame somebody else. Not one time do we see the name of Bathsheba in what he said. Not one time did he say, well, God, if if she hadn't been out there bathing, I wouldn't have done what I did. If she had just refused to come over, if you, God, hadn't let me go out on my rooftop and I was being a lazy bum and sleeping in, and if you hadn't let me do that, I would never have sinned in this way. David didn't do any of that. He said, "I, I sinned. It's on me. No excuses. It is my fault. And this is where we need to be. If you really want to see any progress in your marriage, any resolution to your strife or conflict, any breaking down of the barriers in your relationship, it will only begin at this place. If you seek to glorify Christ by looking primarily and firstly at your own sin. And if you said in that moment, yeah, right, Tim, or I don't believe you, Tim, or you don't understand, Tim, that is exactly your problem. And what I just said exactly applies to you. You know, I know it's not easy. I can really stink at this. I remember a few years ago when my wife and I, we went out for our anniversary. You know, we don't get a chance to do that a lot because it's on December 30th. It's usually in the middle of holidays. And so I didn't say that so you can send me stuff. But if you want to, that's fine. (laughs) But you know, so usually we're involved in holiday activities so when we get a chance to actually go out on our anniversary night you know it's a special thing so we went to this really nice italian restaurant i think it was over in montrose and um, we had a great dinner together we dressed up and we were really enjoying one another's company we were reminiscing about how god had blessed our marriage and talking about uh, our kids and just how god encouraged us through them and you know it was the perfect date until yes in my infinite wisdom I thought, well, wow, we are communicating so well and things are going so great. This would be the the perfect time for me to shepherd my wife by pointing out some ways she can improve in her parenting. I told you last week, husbands are idiots, right? (laughs) So, bad decision. You know, because my tendency is I tend to point out the negative things well in our relationship, but I get low marks for encouragement. After my little pep talk, things got pretty quiet. I'd really hurt my wife. We'd finished our fine meal in silence. We went for a walk after that, and, you know, I, I uh, tried asking questions to get the conversation going, but nothing. It stayed quiet. And it was then that I think made things even better by getting angry with her and telling her in not so loving a way, You know, and here's the thing. That whole time, as she was being silent, guess who I was focused on? Guess who I was justifying my anger by was was her response. I can remember thinking, I was just trying to help. I was trying to be constructive. I was shepherding my wife and caring for my family. And, you know, and I spoke gently to her. I was kind in my words. These were things she needed to hear. So I thought. And as her silence continued, the more I focused on her speck and how she was responding rudely to me rather than on what I did. What started out as a a great night turned out to be a pretty expensive conflict. 
But you know, just all my energy was spent in the wrong direction. It was, it was my sin that needed attention first, not hers. I was the one that needed to be looking at myself because all the while I'm checking out her speck and focusing on it and obsessing over it and getting more angry about it. My own, my log swinging around, bonking her and everybody else in my path. You may be wondering at this point, okay, Tim, I get it. Look first at my sin. I've I've heard that illustration about the log and everything before. I I understand it. Why are you stuck here? Let's move on. Well, I'm stuck here because this is where we get stuck. This is exactly the place where progress toward reconciliation, particularly in marriage, stops. Listen, again, your spouse isn't your problem. Stop focusing on what they're doing or not doing. Stop. Focus on yourself. And don't say, well, I've done that. But please see, Jesus is driving at something here. And he knows us. He understands us. He's very discerning. He's very wise. He says, hey, stop judging other people. First, look at your log. When I meet with couples, who do you think they are convinced is the cause of their problem? You know, because you do this too, right? We all do it. I'm just here so you can fix my wife. Or I'm here to see my husband changed. Our marriage problems will go away when my spouse stops what they are doing. And I know some of us are a little crafty. We know we can't be that blatant about it. We know that, well, yes, I need to talk about I'm the problem and, and they aren't. But in our hearts, we still really, truly believe that, you know what, if they did change, I wouldn't be like this. That's where we stay. That's where we remain entrenched. Keep believing that and the problems in your marriage will never go away. They will never change. Because if we keep feeling justified to wait for the other person to change, we are willing to sacrifice our marriage or whatever the relationship is on the altar of self. And I see this all the time. But just think about this. Imagine for a moment, what if both people... We're only focused on their own sin. And that is what mattered to them the most to deal with. And that is what they were most concerned about. Till sin be bitter, Christ or marriage will not be sweet. The moment you truly embrace, I'm the biggest problem in my marriage, brothers and sisters, that is where you will turn a corner. Now, your spouse may or may not change. They do have sins they need to deal with. They may or may not get dealt with. But if you see yourself and you're focused primarily on yourself as a primary problem in your marriage, you will turn a corner. I'm not just saying the other person's sin doesn't matter, that it should be ignored. Please don't get that. Jesus did say, help them remove their speck. But that's for another sermon. We're focusing today on what's harder, on what's more important. And that is that you and I focus on our own sin and not that of our spouse. And again, it's not just seeing our sin. That's critical. It's not just admitting to it, which is also critical, but it's also doing something about it. And that's what Jesus talks about when he he says, first, take the log out of your own eye. Get rid of it. See the log and then launch the log. And that's the third pillar. Launch your log. All of us need to be lumberjacks this morning. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 5. You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is what is genuine repentance. Jesus is describing genuine repentance here. And that is simply to, one, acknowledge that I've sinned. And and second, It is to make the commitment to take steps to change. It's seeing the sin and then doing things so that you won't do that sin again. The first step is to confess the sin to the one you sinned against the most, right? David did that. To you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And after that, after going to the Lord with genuine confession and seeking forgiveness, we then need to do another hard step, which is to confess to our spouse, to confess to them. And if you do that, if it's sincere, if it's genuine, if it's heartfelt, if it's not just one of these, you know, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to do that. If you go, honey, I know I I sinned against you or I offended you and, and please forgive me. I know that must have hurt. I know that must have felt terrible, especially coming from me. 
If it's a genuine, heartfelt response, you know, that's like a crack in the dam where the, breaks forth the waters of reconciliation. That will often soften your spouse's heart. And that's not always the case. I understand that. And that's not the reason that we should confess. That's not the reason that we should go to them. Again, our motivation is to examine ourselves. And we want to do this because it honors Christ. And the real way you can know if your confession is genuine or not is by how you respond if your spouse doesn't respond in the way you were hoping. That's what will tell you if you were real or not. If your spouse doesn't confess themselves, if, if they even respond, well, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. You were a jerk. Or if they still won't talk to you, if they're still bitter, how you respond to that will tell you if your confession was real. If you get angry, if you say, well, fine, I don't forgive you, or I don't, I don't care then, I'm not going to confess, and you get back in the fight again, then you weren't being genuine. Genuine repentance comes with a genuine confession. But not only there, it doesn't end at the verbal confession. Genuine repentance also includes taking steps to change. It always shows itself in action, right? There's always fruit. So as you seek forgiveness for your sin, also be thinking about what steps are you going to take? And even as you ask for forgiveness or say, you know, honey, these are some things I really want to work at to not do this again. And even ask for some advice from your spouse. That'll really test if you're being genuine in your confession, if you're willing to take instruction from them. I know we've been talking a lot about sin here so far. Great, great marriage discussion, Tim. See your sin. Don't blame shift for your sin. Understand the biggest problem in your marriage is your sin. Repent from your sin. Sin, sin, sin. Don't you have another playlist, Tim? Is that all we can talk about? Well, there's a reason for that. There's a reason we looked at 1 Timothy 1.15. Not only because Paul reveals and confesses that he's the chief of sinners, but also what else Paul has to say there. Let me read it to you again. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. You know, we don't focus on our sin so that we would beat ourselves into obedience. Yes, I am the worst sinner I know. And you are the worst sinner that you know. But that's not where it ends. Because that's who Jesus came for. He came because we are sinners. He came for those who recognize and realize that. And in Christ, I haven't found condemnation, but mercy. Paul talks about here, in in Christ, we have found someone who is perfectly patient with us. Paul's been playing this beautiful symphony all through the letter to the Ephesians about Christ's mercy and his forgiveness, right? I was dead in sin, but Christ made me alive. I deserved hell, but God offered every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. I deserve to be separate from God forever. But God has adopted me and brought me into fellowship with Him. I deserve punishment, but God instead showed me grace. 1 Timothy 1.15 is a great marriage passage because it reminds us not only do we need to see ourselves as the chief of sinners, it reminds us that we have a great Savior and that you and I have been shown grace God wants you to give it to your spouse. And that's the fourth pillar of marriage. You've been shown grace, so give grace. Because not only are you a big sinner, but you married one. Person that was giving you those googly eyes on your wedding day, was making those vows to you, you know what? Muy grande sinner. I think that means very big sinner. And did you think, and you were standing there, uh, maybe you were up here or some other place, and you were standing there facing one another, did you think that as you were making those vows to one another and looking in each other's eyes, that 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 person you were looking at would never again sin against you? Did you believe that? If you did, I got a bridge. I can sell you. Right? I, I love... Puritan Richard Baxter, he gives some great instruction on this point in his work, The Christian Directory. This is what he has to say. Remember still that you are both diseased persons, full of infirmities, and therefore expect 
the fruit of those infirmities in each other. And make not a strange matter of it, as if you had never known of it before. If you had married one that is lame, would you be angry with her because of her unsure footing? Or if you had married one that had a putrid ulcer, would you fall out with her because it stinketh? This was in the early 1500s, by the way. Did you not know beforehand that you married a person of such weaknesses as would yield you some matter of daily trial and offense? If you could not bear this, you should not have married her. If you resolve that you could bear it then, you are obliged to bear it now. Resolve, therefore, to bear with one another as remembering that you took one another as sinful, frail, imperfect persons and not as angels or as blameless and perfect. You know, Baxter is so insightful here he, he he's talking about here if you if you married somebody that had a, a physical disability or or you know they had a, a physical weakness or a problem and and you married them knowing about that problem you you wouldn't hold that against them would you he's saying you wouldn't uh, be angry with that physical weakness you would you would be patient with them you would bear with it because you were willing to marry them knowing that they had it right baxter says likewise you married somebody with a spiritual disability that they are a sinner you knew they were a sinner before you married them, right? Did you know that? Were you aware of that? Cut them some slack. Bear with them. Help them. Just as if they had a physical struggle or difficulty. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, don't kick them when they're down. Don't treat them as their enemy. He says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself, again, self-examination, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Is this verse meant only for people outside of our marriage? Is this verse a passage only for those outside of our homes? That I'll, I'll bear your burdens, but my wife's... <laughs> When your spouse sins, don't see them as the enemy. See them as somebody who needs to be rescued. See them as somebody who needs help. But they sin against me, and it hurts. They don't deserve my care in that moment. This is where the gospel breaks through, brothers and sisters, because we don't deserve God's care either, do we? But He shows us grace. You know, when your spouse sins, they've made a decision in that moment, to defy God. All sin is in direct defiance of God. It's rebellion against God. And when your spouse has taken that path, when they've gone down that road, they've chosen to worship something else instead of God. And, and especially if that sin was committed against you, the person that they had made a vow to love and cherish, that makes it all the more wicked. But Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, but you be kind to one another, tender-hearted, gracing each other, just as God in Christ has also graced you. You need to see your spouse as you see yourself, a sinner that's in daily need of a Savior. You must see them as a person in need of grace because if there's any relationship where the gospel of grace should shine forth and be put on display, it's in marriage. And that grace means not only to help them overcome their sin, but if that sin is against you, that grace means to forgive them. Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, said, A happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. I agree with her. Your spouse's sin, you know what, rather than provoking malice and anger and bitterness, your spouse's sin should provoke compassion. It should provoke mercy. Just like it did with God. What did God do in response to our sin? He sent His beloved Son and murdered Him on a cross. That's what God did when He saw our sin. And so we too are to be gracing one another just as God in Christ also graced us. But that's hard. I don't have the strength to do that. What they did hurts too much. I don't really know how to be compassionate or, or mercy. What if they do it again? Or what if they just keep on doing it? You know, I, I get that. 
We're not robots. It's not like we have a, a switch we can flip that we are going to turn the emotions off right now. Click. Okay, now I can deal with this situation from an objective point of view. We're not like that. I get that. And that's why we need the fifth pillar. Fifth pillar of God honoring marriages is to be spirit filled. And that's where we started this journey back in verse 18, where Paul says that we are to not get drunk with wine, but be filled by the Spirit. And then he gives five results of being controlled and yielded to the Spirit's control. And that last result was being subject to one another, being mutually humble before one another. And from that, Paul then veered the focus and veered the direction towards our homes. That that was to be a a practical outworking of of being filled by the Spirit and, and mutually submissive or humble towards one another. Paul's saying by doing that that you're not going to have a marriage that puts Christ at the center. You're not going to be able to see your sin clearly. You're not going to extend grace to your spouse unless you're living a spirit-controlled life. There's no other way to do it. It's impossible without the Spirit empowering you. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out, finish it for me, the desires of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, You'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. True victories in the battlefield of sin are only achieved through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And if you remember when we talked about what it means to be Spirit-filled, there were a couple things I drew your attention to. To be Spirit-filled is to be in communion with God through His Word and communion with God through His people. We often cut one or, or both of those out, but both of them are required if you're to be under the Spirit's control. Paul, all through the letter to the Ephesians, was talking about that. He's talking about the fact that we are one body. We're interconnected. His Spirit's primary function and work is within the body of Christ. He brought us to unity, and we're to be diligent to maintain that unity. He brought both Jew and Gentile into one. He made us all into one new man, one building, one bride, one body. And to be filled by the Spirit, you have to be not only in the Word of God, you have to be with God's people. They have to be in your lives. It's not just a a physical presence where, hey, we're around each other right now. It is being within one another's lives. That is when the Spirit does His work. He works through His Word, and He works through His people. And you know, when I see couples who are struggling, there's two characteristics I usually find. One is, and I see it through when I ask him questions about, well, what does God's Word have to say about marriage? Or what does God's Word have to say about this particular circumstance or struggle you have? And when I hear that, well, I'm not sure, or there was something about over here, that tells me they're not in the Word, and they're not in the Word specifically in regards to their struggle. A second characteristic that I often tend to see is that I ask them, is there anyone else in your life that knows what's going on? Is there any other couple that you've been spending time with? Usually the answer I get is no. In fact, hardly anybody knows what's going on. They're only in to get counseling at that point because something blew up or they got found out. And they're in desperation mode at that point. But brothers and sisters, you you cannot be yielded to the Spirit's control if you were shutting out the body of Christ because He works through, He gifts each of us. He, He moves us and empowers us to carry out the one another's in each other's lives. And when we cut that off, it's as if also we're cutting off His Word. It's the same effect. Holy Spirit works through both His Word and His people. So we need to get into each other's lives. We need to know what's going on with one another. Don't wait. Don't wait till your marriage is completely in the tank. If you're having a little bit of struggle right now, involve others in your lives. Tell them about that so that they can be praying for you, so that they can come alongside you. Have another mature couple in your life that you can be looking at their example, that you can be getting advice and instruction from them. Have other couples that you can be doing the same thing with and coming alongside them. Didn't Ed talk about a few weeks ago with discipleship? I mean, that's what it looks like, doesn't it? Involved in each other's lives to the extent that we're, we're beyond the surface stuff, that we're actually involved in each other's lives. That we know the sins that we struggle with. Yeah, my wife and I had a big fight last night. I slept on the couch. Why? What happened? Well, my wife, no, no, don't start there. Well, okay, yeah, I... Let me pray for you, brother. Let me help you. You know, just a few years ago, around the time of our famous anniversary date, my wife and I were really struggling. There was a lot of tension 
our relationship, anger, bitterness, and it lasted for months. And we were just having a hard time with that. But you know what? Being around other men and my wife being around other women that could be helping us be accountable, being here, coming here each week and being involved here at church, Lord, to be encouraged and exhorted by His Word, to be encouraged by you all, just to keep my focus on the Lord. You know that the church, the body of Christ, has been invaluable to my marriage. God used it. God created marriage, and He created the church, and He didn't create them as two separate entities. They were both created to work together to help us be more like Christ, to help us to advance the gospel, to bring God glory. Both of them together as living organisms, and they work together if you let them. Don't distance yourself. Don't separate your family from the church. Don't separate the church from your family. In fact, don't separate any part of your life from the church. And by church, you know, I mean beyond just this hour and a half we spend together, right? You understand that, right? Church isn't just this time. You hear that a lot, but we have to keep emphasizing it and encouraging you in that way. It is more than just the time we spend here, but it is the time we spend in a fellowship group, in a small group, in a ministry together, or, or just with another believer consistently, frequently. That's what we need to be doing. Get God's people in your life and you get in theirs. Amen? If you agree with that, if you see the importance of that, then you will see change in your marriage. Because even marriages that are going great right now, maybe your marriage is in a good spot or you have a relationship with others and you're doing well. You know, sin has a tendency, Satan has a tendency to try to thwart that. So maintaining good relationships now with others in the body will pay Dividends hugely later when those struggles come. So the six pillars of a God-honoring marriage are remember your reason, see your sin, launch your log, give grace, be spirit-filled, and finally the last one is relish your role. And that brings us back to Ephesians 5. Paul spends a lot of time on that to talk about the roles, the responsibilities of a husband and a wife within marriage. And we're going to spend... a Uh, some time looking at these in the coming weeks. But I would ask you, in the meantime, read those 12 verses every day. Please do this. Every day, whether it's your quiet time, first thing in the morning, if you break it sometime in the day, just read these 12 verses, keep them on a card. And as you do that, ask the Lord, Lord, help me to really understand what these verses mean. And please, please help me to be motivated to apply them. Commit to do that Every week, because Satan and this world are doing everything they can to keep you from the joy and contentment and testimony of a great marriage. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor living in Nazi Germany, was engaged to a woman named Maria. But he never saw his wedding day because Bonhoeffer was arrested and held for two years in a concentration camp. And then he was hung from a noose just 11 days before that camp was liberated. And he wrote many letters while he was there. In one of the letters, he talks about marriage. This is what he says. Marriage is more than your love for each other. In your love, you only see the heaven of your own happiness. But in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. He meant a lot of things there, but one thing that Bonhoeffer realized is there is more at stake in your marriage than your own happiness and contentment. There's a watching world that's looking for every opportunity to mock Jesus, right? To look at uh, our relationships and to look at us and say, yeah, Christianity is just like every other religion. There's not much to it. Look at their relationship. It's not any better than mine. Brothers and sisters, through your marriage... You put the love of Christ for His bride on display. What kind of love does the world see in your marriage? Let's pray. Lord, I know we all here come from different backgrounds. We're in different places. Some of us are married. Some are single. Some of us are marriages are going through great trial, Lord. Some of us are married to those who don't know you. Lord, some of us would love to be married, but we're just having trouble finding somebody. Lord, I know we're all in different places. Whatever 
place we are to be found in, Lord, I would pray that we would extol and exalt marriage because it is a picture of, of the relationship you have, Lord Jesus, with your bride. And we want to display a good picture. Help us, God, please. We cannot do this. Lord, forgive us for not wanting to at times. Father, I pray that you would work in our own hearts, that you would do a work in the marriages within this church. Lord, that you would restore any that are broken. Lord, that you would cause each of us to get involved in the body and involve others in our lives so that, Father, we could be changed by your Spirit working through them. Lord, let us have your word richly dwell within us that we would commune with you so that your Spirit would also work through your word. We pray these things and pray again for a concert this weekend, Lord, that it would be something that would magnify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.